Okay, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. We got Eric on live, and the video's working, and the audio's working. So today we're back studying the book of Joel, and I'll turn it over to Eric. I'll let him start us with prayer. Amen. We'll bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you that we can look into your word and we can learn about your promises. Uh, we thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us direct commands and understanding as to what you've done for us so that we can persevere until that last day. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, oh, it's great to be with all of you here. Now, in Joel, we're going to be in chapter 3 today, looking at how he brings all of the nations down to the valley of Jehoshaphat for this final battle. But before I do that, I want to talk about three slides that we never got to last time about the sending of the Spirit. So remember, chapter 2 of Joel is about the restoration that will happen through the sending of the Spirit. Joel chapter 3 is really about the restoration that happens when the Messiah comes and as he defends Israel against all of her enemies. But let's remember that the last chapter was all about the sending of the Spirit. And I want to talk about this slide. Oops, can't get my thing to go forward. There we go. I want to talk about that Deuteronomy 10, 16. Remember back in the law, we had God command the people of Israel to circumcise their heart. And the idea of an uncircumcised heart was one in which it was hard to God. It was a heart that couldn't respond to the things of God. And so the circumcision of the heart was synonymous with belief and obedience, where one would have a soft heart and they would believe the promises of God. What's interesting in Deuteronomy 10, 16, he says, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. This is something that Israel can't do. And this is what we were finishing our discussion about last week when we were talking about the inability of man to do this. God is commanding his people to do something that in and of themselves, they don't have the power to do. Now, one example that I thought of is last week, we talked about when Christ commands us to be holy. Remember, he says, be holy even as the, the Heavenly Father is holy. Well, think about the axiomatic statement. You'll hear people say, well, no one is perfect. And so, so obvious is it to humanity that no human being is perfect, that we have a, a saying that no one's perfect, right? If your son does something wrong or your daughter, they'll say, well, no one is perfect. That's often a line that I hear. Well, the problem with that, of course, is God is commanding us to be perfect. And so certainly, yes, God does command his people to do things that they can't do. Now, the great promise later on in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, is that the Lord would enable a circumcised heart. Listen to what Moses said, he said, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Now, notice here the connection of God bringing about this heart transformation. And what is it going to lead to? It's going to leave. It's going to lead to people loving the Lord their God with their whole heart. Remember, this is the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your being, if you're to summarize and to love your neighbors yourself. Okay, now that doesn't happen in order to be saved. That happens to those who are saved. So justification is where your heart is transformed. You believe upon the Messiah. You have right standing with God. And then the Holy Spirit enables you to do that which is pleasing in your sight. So that's exactly what Moses is teaching us. He's teaching us what we see in the New Testament regarding regeneration by the Spirit. So the point is, all the way back in the law, this idea of the Spirit's necessity to come and to do for God's people what they couldn't do for themselves is already present. Now, I want to show you that it's not just in the law, but it's in the prophets as well. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 36. We'll look at verses 25 through 28. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 28. And what you're going to see is very similar language about the heart. There's going to be a heart transplant that God promises that he will perform. Again, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28. And by the way, as you're turning there again to Ezekiel 36, 25, I think this is the passage that Jesus had in his mind 
when he talks about being born of water and spirit in John chapter 3. Remember, that's where Nicodemus asked, how can a man enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, unless a man is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And again, uh, what's so sad is many times you have Catholic theologians who think that's a reference to baptism, but it is not. It's a reference to regeneration by the Spirit that we see in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28. Let's read that. Notice it says, Ezekiel 36, 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So stop there for just a moment. Notice in verse 25, the result of what God is going to do is he's going to get rid of the idolatry of Israel. By what? By giving them a new heart, as we see in verse 26. He says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, stop there in verse 26. Again, this is the same heart transplant that he's promising Back in the law, I believe, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. But he's going to regenerate the heart of his people, enabling them to believe. You know, many years ago, when I was a newer Christian, I always tried to struggle with what it meant to have a heart of flesh versus a heart of stone there in Ezekiel 36, 26. And one thing that we have to keep in mind is we often think of the flesh as that which is opposed to God. But in the analogy that Ezekiel's using, flesh is opposed to stone. Stone would be a heart that can't respond to the things of God. A heart of flesh, in this example, would be a heart that can respond to God. That's how Ezekiel is using it, clearly. Okay, so now notice, how does this heart transplant take place? Ezekiel 36, 27. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Stop there. Notice God is going to be the one who causes them to walk in his statutes. They're not able to do it in and of themselves. Why? Because of their hard heart, because of their heart of stone. But when God puts his spirit in them, he is going to give them a new heart, and he's going to enable them to walk in his statutes. And so that's why we often see that faith and obedience go hand in hand. If you're justified by faith alone, and we are, it leads to obedience. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, we're saved by grace alone. But in verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, saved by faith alone through God's grace alone, but it leads to obedience. We see the same doctrines being taught here. In Ezekiel 36. Notice in verse 28, it says, you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. God is looking at the sending of the Spirit, ultimately for restoration, bringing his people to faith, but also giving them the covenant promises that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, with that, by the way, if there's any comments or questions, feel free at any time. I'd love to dialogue with you, and let's move on here to the next slide. I want to show you how this is appropriated in the new covenant. Now, before I read to you from Romans 8 on the screen, I want you to remember the context of Romans 8. In Romans chapter 7, Paul lays out that the work of the law never brought about righteousness, but death. And remember that the law could not bring righteousness, not because the law was imperfect. In fact, Paul says in Romans 7, 12, that the Paul, excuse me, that the law is wholly righteous and good. So the law isn't the problem, it's our sinful nature. But when the law mixed with our sinful nature, it didn't bring life, it brought death. In fact, before we read what's on the screen, turn your Bibles to Romans 7, verses 9 through 11. Again, Romans 7, verses 9 through 11. Romans 7, verses 9 through 11. I want you to see here the problem with the law. And therefore, we're going to see the great promise of sending the Spirit is really a great promise indeed. Again, turn your Bibles to Romans 7, verses 9 through 11. And notice what Paul says here, what the law did to him. And I think he's speaking as the prototypical unregenerate man. In Romans 7, 9 through 11, he says, I was once alive apart from the law, 
But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Now stop there. Notice Paul isn't saying that when the law came, it made him a little bit better. No, when the law came, it actually incited his sinful nature so much so that it killed him. In fact, notice verse 10, he says, and this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Notice the key verse here, verse 11, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Now, notice in verse 11, what the law did is it used our sin nature, or I should say a, a better way of putting it is the sin used the law to kill us. That's what Paul is saying. So it's our sin nature co-opted the law and used it as a, a front in which it could launch an attack and kill us. So the problem isn't the law, though. It's our sin nature. And that's what Paul points out in the very next verse. In verse 12, if you kept reading, he says that the law is totally righteous and good. So here's the problem. Here's an analogy. When it came to sending of the law, it functioned like oil and water with our nature. Our sin nature and the law didn't mix. It created a, a big problem. It just led to more rebellion, more sin, and therefore death. And so that was the old covenant. That's what characterized the old covenant was inability, the sending of the law. Remember that happened at the very first Pentecost and it led to what? 3,000 dying when they made the golden calf. But at the Pentecost where the spirit comes, 3,000 come to eternal life. Why? Because God would enable people to finally believe and therefore obey. And so that's what we contrast. Notice it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now he explains it. Verse 2, he says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now stop there for just a moment in verse two. Let's ask ourselves the question, what does Paul mean when he uses this phrase, the law of the spirit of life? And what does he mean by the law of sin and of death? Well, here I think he's using the term law of the spirit and the law of sin as two opposing forces, like two opposing powers, okay? And so the analogy is that the the power of the spirit brings life, but the power of the law only brought sin and death. And so he's contrasting two different epochs of time, two different ways in which God has dealt with man. The giving of the law only incited our sin nature, but the giving of the spirit enabled us to have new hearts to believe and obey. That's the idea. So notice in verse three, he says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, Stop there. What's the problem? Was it the law? No. Earlier, again, Romans 7, 12, the law was holy, righteous, and good, but it was what? Weak through the flesh. It was our sin nature that weakened the law. That was the problem. They didn't mix. They're like oil and water. So what did God do? It says God did. God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves by what? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, notice here when it says walking according to the spirit, walking has to do with the way you live your life. You walk it out. Um, the analogy I like to think of in my mind is the Israelites were saved in the Exodus, but they had to walk that out through the wilderness, didn't they? They had to walk it out. But most of them stumbled. Why? Because they didn't believe. So why did they disobey? Because they didn't believe. That's why they stumbled. They didn't walk out a fruitful life. But you and I are to walk out a fruitful life, and we can do that. Why? Because we've been given the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit enables us to come to faith in Christ so that you and I can overcome the penalty of sin. That's Romans chapters 1 through 5, or excuse me, really Romans chapters 1 through 4. Well, when you get to Romans chapter 5 through 8, it's really about how the Spirit enables us to overcome not only the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. 
So the sending of the Holy Spirit, yes, would enable us to come to Christ where we are forgiven. We have the forgiveness of sins. We've overcome the penalty of sin, but it's also going to enable us to overcome the sin nature and actually obey God. So we overcome the power of sin. Both are true and both are a result of the sending of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why we see the Holy Spirit is what we often refer to as the sine qua non for the Christian life, without which you are not a Christian and without which you're not in the new covenant, without which you don't belong to God. That's exactly Paul's point here, Romans 8, 8 through 9. It says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now notice the schematic that Paul's using here is a two-sphere, two-camp schematic. You're either in the flesh, notice here, or you're in the spirit, notice here. And it's one or the other, it's binary. All right, so the idea here is notice in the bold, he says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, it does not belong to him. If you're not here, you're by definition still in the flesh. It's either or. There's no connection between the two. Okay, so if you're in the flesh, it means you don't have the spirit. You haven't come to faith. You're still under the penalty of sin, and you're still not free from the power of sin. But if you're in the spirit, that means the Holy Spirit brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. You have the forgiveness of sins, so you're released from the penalty of sin. But you're also enabled to do that which is pleasing to God, to obey his commands, to love the Lord your God, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And therefore, what? You're freed from the power of sin. That's the schematic that Paul is dealing with. Now, one thing I want to point out here is notice he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is really a devastating indictment against those who believe in human ability. Remember, the only way that we can please God ultimately is by coming to faith. That's the point of the writer of Hebrews, that if we want to please God, it's by faith. That's the only way. It's the only thing that's pleasing to him. So if you are in the flesh, the idea is that you can't please God. You can't come to saving faith. And so again, Romans 8.8 8 is showing us the inability of man. Brothers and sisters, it's very exciting to know that when Joel, at around 800 years prior to the coming of Christ the first time, he was promising this very thing that we see that happens at Pentecost in the sending of the Spirit. That's very exciting to me to see that, yes, the promise wasn't something brand new in the New Testament, but it was rooted in the law and also in the prophets, the sending of the Holy Spirit and us coming to faith. Now, with the sending of the Spirit, Joel's point is that it would usher in the ultimate restoration. And so it's very interesting to me that this is connected to chapter 3 of Joel, where we see that the ultimate restoration will be when the Messiah returns a second time to subdue all of the enemies. So think of it this way. Joel chapter 2, you have the inauguration, the beginning of the last days, the sending of the Spirit. Joel chapter 3, you have the second sending of the Messiah, the consummation of the last days. So Joel chapter 2, the sending of the Spirit. Joel chapter 3, the second sending of the Messiah. You have the whole last days bracketed within Joel chapter 2 and chapter 3. All right? And so that's why we see this idea of the promise of restoration in Joel. Joel chapter 2.23 Hey, Israel, if you repent, I'm going to send you rain. I'm going to send you rain on your crops. You won't have the drought anymore. I'll get rid of your locusts. But I'll also do something even greater than that in the last days. I'll pour out my spirit. So notice the connection to the pouring out of the rain and the pouring out of the spirit. The one will lead to a temporary restoration of the land. The latter will lead to a permanent restoration of the soul. Next, we saw that God promised to remove the northern army. But again, that's going to lead to a temporary solution against Assyrian Babylon. But in the last days, in chapter 3, God removes all of the armies. So again, the temporary solution for a temporary problem is replaced by a permanent solution for a permanent problem. Again, you have a temporary solution to a temporary problem. 
you have a permanent solution for a permanent problem. And that's how the ultimate restoration begins with the sending of the Spirit, but it culminates with Christ removing all of the enemies of God. And that's the entirety of the last days. All right now, let me put up this battle then where we see that this ultimate restoration is indeed going to come. Notice Joel 3, 1 through 2. He says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is notice the phrase, in those days and at that time. Notice that in the blue. Well, that's a reference to the last days back in Joel 2.28. Now, how do we know that's a reference to the last days in Joel 2.28? Because the Apostle Peter tells us that's what it is. Okay? The Apostle Peter said at Pentecost in Acts 2.17 that this was the last days, and he was interpreting Joel 2.28. So remember, this is going to be the end of the last days. So whereas Joel chapter 2 was the beginning of it, the sending of the Spirit, now we're seeing the culmination of it. So it's in those days and at that time, he says, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, notice in the underlying portion, he says, I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. The term restore, shuv, is the term for return. Sometimes it's used for repentance, by the way, in the Old Testament. So God is going to return. But I don't like the translation, and it's in a lot of our English versions, fortunes. The term in Hebrew is actually shavut, which means captivity. So literally in the Hebrew, what's being promised is that God is going to restore the captivity, or you might say Judah and Jerusalem from the captivity. That's the idea. Now, to show you that's exactly what he's saying, turn your Bibles again back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. I want you to see that this promise goes all the way back to the law again. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 3, where God promised that he would return the people from their captivity. Now, as you're turning to Deuteronomy chapter 30, again, verses 1 through 3, remember that this is the same passage that promised the sending of what? The Spirit by regenerating our heart, that God would circumcise our heart. Okay? Now, Deuteronomy 30 obviously comes after Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 27, where you see that the promises of blessing and the promises of cursing were given, remember, at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim? And so the ultimate cursing would be a removal of the people from the promised land. That's what we saw promised. So God says, look, if you, if you don't believe and you don't obey, I'm going to send all these curses upon you, and I'm going to remove you from your land. But now here... In Deuteronomy 30, he's promising this restoration. Notice he says, So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now, dear ones, notice there up in verse 2 of Deuteronomy 30, where God says, once you believe with all your heart and soul, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to re return you from your captivity. Well, that's exactly what Joel chapter 2 was focused on, the sending of the Spirit who enables us to believe and obey. But then we see in Joel chapter 3, the same restoration alluded to in Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. Does everyone see the connection? Now, also notice in Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, the reference to restore from captivity. There are the identical terms used here for restore the fortunes. Okay? It's literally shuv shavut. So, again, it's not just that. Israel, see, when you look at the term fortunes, you think, well, maybe their stock market went down. And their stock market went down a little bit because, after all, they were disobeying the Lord. And, well, now God is going to restore their fortunes. Their stock market will come back. No, that's not the idea here. 
the idea is that they're going to be restored from captivity. They're going to be banished into foreign lands because they were so sinful. God is promising a day in the last days or that will no longer be the case. And I want you to think about how shocking that is because Israel for their entirety had struggled with the enemies of God. But what's being promised in this text is no more. That's not going to be the case anymore. At the end of the last days, God is going to do something where they will no longer ever be in captivity again, no longer be threatened again. Now, let me show you another place where we see this great promise. This comes a couple hundred years after what Joel wrote. In fact, about 300 years later. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 16, 15. Jeremiah 16, 15. Please turn your Bibles there. Jeremiah 16, verse 15. And again, Jeremiah is concerned with Israel being restored in Judah after the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah 16, 15. Notice what he says here, the great promise. He says, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Again, the term restore there is identical to what we see here in Joel 3, 1. So whether it's the law in Deuteronomy 30, or a very early prophet like Joel, or a latter prophet like Jeremiah, the great promise that God gave was that at the end of the last days, God would restore his people back to their land, and he would secure them from their enemies. That's the idea. Okay, now I want you to notice here down in verse 2, what's he going to do? He's going to gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, what's very interesting is he brings all of the nations down here. He's going to do so to enter into judgment with them. And I'll talk more about this later. The idea is he's going to destroy the nations that are trying to destroy his people. He's going to enter into judgment with them. So before the last days, God was always judging Israel. But at the end of the last days, what he's going to do is he's going to restore them and judge the nations who tried to destroy them. Now, what's interesting is because the nations reject Jesus, remember what Jesus' name means? Yahweh is salvation, Yeshua, right? The same name that Joshua has. So think of Joshua, the lesser prophet. He brings people into a lesser promised land. But Jesus, the second Joshua, the greater prophet, the prophet par excellence, he's the one who brings the people into the ultimate promised land. Well, the point is because the nations rejected Yahweh as salvation, Jesus, they get Yahweh as judge. That's what Jehoshaphat means. Yahweh is judge. All right. Now, this battle that's being alluded to here in Joel 3.2 is the same battle that's being alluded to in Zechariah 14. It's the battle where all the nations are brought against Jerusalem. It's the same battle that begins in Revelation 16, where all the nations are assembled at Armageddon, the Jezreel Valley. But when you get to Revelation 19, the battle's actually around Jerusalem where the Messiah returns. Okay, so Armageddon is the assembling ground, but the battle actually occurs around Jerusalem. Eric, could I ask something? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know where my video went, but I guess... So, all right, maybe you can see it. Um, I wrote an article about this, oh, I don't know, a long time ago, because doesn't Jehoshaphat, doesn't, don't some translations call this the Valley of Decision? Yeah, in fact, later on, it's called that same thing. Yep. Okay, so this Valley of Decision, this uh, uh, really, the article I wrote was about decision theology, I think. Yeah. And what was that issue was who's making the decision. Right. It's God. Okay, so uh, evangelists in the 20th century would use that verse and say multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, and then they're making the application, you need to decide whether God's worthy to be served. Right. Okay, so in other words, man decides whether they'll serve God. Right. In, in that... I mean, they had football fields full of people, and they'd use that verse out of context and make God the one on trial, 
and the human's the one making the decision. Yeah, Bob, that is a terrible application of a verse, isn't it? Well, it's it's, it's just it's, if they, they want to call people to make a decision, they need to use a different verse than this one. <laughs> Because God's right. a judge and God decides. And the real application would be God will make a decision. And if you don't repent, it's not going to be in your favor. Amen. That's exactly so, right. That's exactly right. So yeah, wrote, it's God is making the decision. He's the judge. And he's bringing him to this valley, all of these nations, to render the final verdict. And you're absolutely right, Bob. It has nothing to do with humanity being given a second chance or being given a uh, a command to at this time believe no they're being judged at this final battle um it's they're in a reprobate state where i don't see any uh, of they're not coming out of it they're, this is this is judgment upon them and really um one thing i want to bring out it's a great point bob is at this time in history when the nations come against jerusalem this is really god resolving the ultimate rebellion against him if you think of it this way in uh, Psalm chapter 2 talks about this rebellion against God and his anointed. And that happens all the way throughout history. That the nations and even Israel at times are rebelling against God and against his anointed. Well, at this final battle, that's going to be reconciled. And one of the things I think is very applicable for us today is how many times do you go out and witness to somebody or you're talking about the Bible and they say, well, that's just your interpretation. That's just your religion. I have my own way. And we never have God right on the scene of history who just steps in and says, no, Eric is right and you're wrong. Or Bob DeWay is right and you're wrong. Or that Christian is right and you Buddhist, you're wrong. But at this time, God does enter in into history and he's going to solve the issue. He's going to enter in and fight on behalf of his people, where the rebellion will finally be thrown down. So what I want you to see is that the idea of lawlessness that we're seeing in our society today, the burning, the looting, and the lies, it's finally going to be thrown down one day, and it happens at the Battle of the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So to me, a very good connection to this is turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, because I believe the final answer to Psalm 2, that when God and his anointed throw down their enemies, it happens here. So turn your Bibles to Psalm 2, 1 through 7. I want to read that with you. I want to make the connection to what happens here in Joel 3 and what we're seeing in our own culture today. As you're turning to Psalm 2, we'll, we'll read verses 1 through 7. Remember, it really is a compendium with Psalm 1 about the condition of man. So what I mean by that is in Psalm 1, you have blessed is the righteous man. Psalm 2 is cursed is the unrighteous man. Psalm 1, the blessed man mediates on the law of God. Psalm 2, the cursed man rebels against the law of God. It's lawlessness. And so that's exactly what you're seeing in the streets, the burning, the looting, the Antifa, the BLM, the new morality. You're a sinner if you drive a truck but you're not a sinner if you abort a baby. The complete reversal, that's Psalm 2. It's a rebellion against God and his anointed, and it's going to be rectified here in the Valley of Jehoshaphat where God irreconcilably decides that there's wrath. So notice Psalm 2, verse 1. Psalm 2, verse 1, it says, this is David writing. It says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Stop there. Initially, when David wrote this, he was the Lord's anointed, although he knew the ultimate anointed one would one day be the Messiah, the God-man that he wrote about. Okay, remember Peter's claim in Psalm 16 is that David knew he was writing about the, the Messiah. But here, in a lesser sense, David is the Messiah, the lesser anointed one. And he has kicked the Jebusites and the pagans out of Jerusalem. God has given him his promises in 2 Samuel 7. 14 and onward, that yes, David and his, and his following sons will reign from Jerusalem. And David is so aghast that anyone would rebel against the Lord and his anointed that he asked this question, why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? How stupid is that? What a dumb idea to fight against Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. It's just inconceivable to him. 
Now notice verse two, he says, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed saying, now stop there for just a moment. The rebellion against the Lord and his anointed, remember there was Davidic kings from David on. And in a sense, they all were in the lineage of the anointed. And so rebellion against God and his king that was installed in Jerusalem was rebelling against God himself. The problem, of course, is that a lot of the Davidic kings, they end up rebelling against God themselves. And so that's why they went into captivity. So when Jesus Christ comes on the scene of history, he's the new Israel. He's the perfect son that none of us could be, but he's also the perfect Davidic king. And so the rebellion is ultimately against the Lord in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what David is saying here. Now, notice in verse three, it says, this is what the nations want to do. Let us tear let us tear their fetters and apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, stop there for just a moment. Notice the term tear is natak in Hebrew. Um, if you were to transliterate it, N-A-H-T-A-Q is how I would transliterate it. Natak. Okay, and natak has to do with a physical tearing apart or breaking something away from something else. So the nations want to physically tear themselves apart from the rule of Yahweh, as it were. Okay, or they want to tear themselves spiritually away from his rule as well. Okay, notice the term fetters there, moser. That's a reference to chains that would be used like handcuffs on the wrist or the ankles. And so the idea is that what David is simply saying is that the nations don't want to be bound by God's law. They want to become lawless. That's what he's saying. So they want to be lawless. They want to cast off the law of God. Now, stop there for just a moment. Remember, what was Psalm 1 about? Psalm 1 was the blessed man who meditates upon the law. So whereas Psalm 1 was the blessed man who the law is something he wants to obey because he has a regenerated heart, here you have the unregenerate heart. They want to rebel against the law of God. Do you see the distinction? Notice it says, the Lord scoffs at them. I'm sorry, let me back up. Verse four, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Stop there. When does God establish his king, the ultimate king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate anointed one? It's at the battle Jehoshaphat in Joel 3, the same battle that you see in Zechariah 14, where the Messiah comes and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. This is where it's going to be rectified. This is where the fulfillment of Psalm 2 and what David wrote about will be fulfilled. Again, verse 6, let me read it again, Psalm 2. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Okay. So here's some considerations. Again, Psalm 1 is a focus on the blessed man who meditates on the law of God. Psalm 2 is focusing on the cursed man and the cursed nations that rebel against the law of God. They're becoming lawless. All right. Dear ones, that's what we're seeing in our culture today. What we're seeing in the culture today, whether it's BLM or it's black or the uh, Antifa, the burning, the looting, it's a wholesale rebellion against God and his law. So what we have then is a replacement of God's morality, God's law, with a new morality and a new law. That's what lawlessness ultimately leads to. So, for example, let's take abortion and driving a truck, all right? And I'll explain why I'm using this. You and I say that aborting a baby is immoral. Why? Because it's murder. Thou shall not murder. But the lawless ones in society, apart from God, that are in rebellion say, no, that's fine. In fact, you have a right to do that. But you and I would say that driving a truck is fine. That's your personal liberty. But the new morality says, no, you're sinning because you're putting out carbon dioxide and all of these emissions from the tailpipe of your big SUV or your big truck. Let me tell you a little story where I saw this. 
back in 2014, many of you were going to Gospel of Grace uh, that are in the building here. We were back in the thick auditorium and it was a Wednesday night. I gave a message on Marxism. And that Wednesday night, this is at the Edina High School at the thick auditorium. I don't know if any of you were there, but there was a UN meeting. The UN actually had a meeting with all of these youth. It was for UN youth. And they all heard about climate change and global warming and they all got whipped into a frenzy. Ironically, that night I was giving a message about Marxism. So the Marxists are actually in the building and I drove a pickup truck that night. I drove a big pickup truck that burns lots of gas. And when I had finished putting everything away, everyone else had left. I was the last truck in the parking lot. And when I walked out to it, the whole parking lot was empty and there was one little Toyota Prius in my truck in the entire Edina High School lot. And whoever drove it, this Prius, I would assume it's some left winger, they parked this far away, like an inch from my driver's side door. And the reason they did that was to send me a message that they found it was immoral that I was driving such a gas guzzling machine. After all, they were whipped into a frenzy. They had just learned about the evils of climate change and global warming, et cetera. So what they were doing is they were declaring that my choice in driving the truck was immoral because it burned too much gas. That's the new morality. That's Psalm 2. That's rebelling against the Lord and his anointed. Let's ask ourselves the question, where did Jesus Christ and his apostles under the new covenant say, thou shall not have a gas guzzling truck? They don't say that anywhere. So the new morality, what we're seeing on the streets, what we're seeing in our culture today is literally Isaiah 520, where they call evil good and good evil. And that's intentional because it is the world and rebelling against God saying, look, we're going to tear ourselves away from the handcuffs of Yahweh and Jesus Christ, the anointed. We're not going to listen to that morality that comes from the Bible. We're going to come up with our own. And so the ultimate pinnacle expression of this lawlessness where you have a replacement uh, ideology a replacement morality the ultimate expression of that will be the antichrist and that's why he's called the man of lawlessness remember paul calls him that in second thessalonians 2 8 well where is the man of lawlessness going to be destroyed this battle in joel 3 that's what we see in Revelation 19. He's the one who brings all the nations against Jerusalem. That's where he's going to be thrown down. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Daniel 7, 25, because I want you to see how the man of lawlessness, what does he do? Are we just using the term lawlessness in just a figure of speech? No, he literally is substituting the law of God for his own law. Daniel 7, 25, turn your Bibles there. It's a great description in Daniel 7, 25 of what the lawless Antichrist will in fact do. Daniel 7.25, please turn your Bibles there. Daniel 7.25, and again, this Antichrist that we're reading about, the man of lawlessness, he's the one who's leading the nations in this rebellion that God is going to throw down in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. All right, Daniel 7.25. What does the Antichrist do? The man of lawlessness. Notice it says, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in the law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So that's the saints being worn down for three and a half years. But I want you to focus on that phrase. He's going to make alterations in times and in the law. So this lawless one, it's not that he's an anarchist and he simply says, you can do whatever you want. That's not the left. That's not the Marxist dream. The Marxist says that they come up with their own morality. They're going to replace the law for their own law. Dear ones, when people say to you today that abortion is fine, but driving a big pickup truck is evil, we have to realize that's the spirit of Antichrist. The replacement of the morality that comes from God, his apostles, his prophets, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the replacement with the spirit of Antichrist who will decide for himself what is good and what is bad. It's bringing us all the way back to the Garden of Eden where the original sin was 
you'll decide for yourself what's good and what's evil. You will be like God. So I just wanted to make that connection. All of that rebellion is going to be thrown down in Joel chapter 3. That's, that's the great promise here. Now, I know we've got about five minutes here to go before we get to question and answers. Let me just get into this next slide and ask the question, well, where is this valley of Jehoshaphat? And I really boil it down to four possibilities. Number one, that the valley of Jehoshaphat is not a literal place. And where, where that may be true, that or it may be true that Joel doesn't have a particular place in mind, I don't think it's true that Joel didn't think that this would happen at a particular place, if that makes sense. In other words, he might not give you a literal uh, definition of what the Valley of Jehoshaphat is, but I don't think Joel had in mind that this wasn't going to be a literal place with a literal battle. I think that that's something that we can rule out by the rest of Scripture as well, that no, this is going to be a literal battle. Second option is, well, maybe it was a literal place that Joel didn't really know. And that could be possible. Perhaps the Valley of Jehoshaphat was just a place that Joel really had no idea of where it would be. He just knew that the battle would be. The problem with that view is that Joel seems to give us hints and clues as to where this battle would occur in the rest of Joel chapter 3. And in fact, we see that the battle is going to happen around Jerusalem. Now, let me give you some evidence that Joel seems to indicate he does know where the battle is going to be, and therefore the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Turn your Bibles, first of all, to Joel 3, verses 11 through 12. I just want you to see some more context of Joel 3 that we won't get into yet today. Joel 3, verses 11 through 12. Please turn your Bibles there. Again, Joel chapter 3, verse 11 through 12. And what you're going to see there is that Joel is giving us the context for this battle of the Valley of Jehoshaphat, also known as the Valley of Decision, I believe, when you get to verse 14. Okay? So notice here, Joel 3, 11, Joel says, this is the Lord speaking. He says, hasten and come all you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Yahweh, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now, stop there for a moment. Notice the phrase surrounding nations. In the Hebrew, it means just that. The nations that are surrounding what? Well, surrounding Jerusalem surrounding Israel. Okay, so right away we know that, yeah, this valley of Jehoshaphat is probably going to be in Jerusalem, but there's another clue. Notice in verse 12, where he says, let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, remember, when you and I use the term go up or down, we're often thinking geographically. I'm going to go up north there, you know, and get some walleye, or I'm going down south to get away from the winter cold. We use up and down kind of geographically, whether we're going up north or down south. But that's not how the Jews used up and down. They actually used it more properly. They used it topographically. Okay, so if you go up, you're going up to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem was typically, at least the surrounding mountains, were higher than the rest of the area. And so when you go up, you often were going up to Jerusalem. Well, that's exactly what he says. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. All of these indications seem to point to the fact that this battle is going to happen in Jerusalem. Let me show you further evidence. Now turn your Bibles to Joel 3.15 through 17. Again, Joel 3.15 through 17. Just turn a little bit further. And you're going to see that God is being depicted here as battling the enemies while he's enthroned in Jerusalem. Joel 3, 15 through 17, notice it says, the sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Okay, now stop there for just a moment. Remember, I've labored this point a lot. How many cosmic disturbances do you have in the last 70 week of Daniel, the last seven years? You have five cosmic disturbances. You have one at the sixth seal. You have one at the fourth bowl. You have one at the fifth, excuse me, the fourth trumpet, fifth trumpet. Then you have another one at the fourth bowl. And then you have another one, according to Jesus, in Matthew 24, 29. Remember carefully, Jesus says it will be after those days that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Well, that's the final cosmic disturbance at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. 
Okay, so there's five cosmic disturbances. The one described by Jesus at the very end of the 70th week, Matthew 24, 29, is where the final battle happens. It's the same one being described here in Joel 3.15. Okay, are you with me? So Matthew 24.29 is synonymous with what's being described in Joel 3.15, the fifth and final cosmic disturbance at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. Notice verse 16, Joel 3. It says, the Lord roars from where? From Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Stop there. Notice that synonymous parallelism. The Lord roaring from Zion is synonymous with his, his voice being uttered from Jerusalem. Okay, so God is fighting the enemies that surround Israel here from where? From Jerusalem. That's where the Valley of Jehoshaphat is going to be. All right, notice it says, And the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. Dear ones, I think it's fair to say that the battle will be in Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to stop there for the sake of time. Let's um, open up to comments, questions, ideas, uh, whatever you may have. And we'll hand, handle the rest of this uh, next week. Okay. Do, um, come on. Okay. Does anybody have anything? I got a mic here I can turn on and I can turn the camera around. Can you just ask him where the Valley of Jehoshaphat is? <laughs> he wants to know exactly where the Valley of Jehoshaphat is. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll um, we're going to lay that out next week, but. I, I think it's the Kidron Valley. Kidron Valley. I've heard that before. Yeah, I think that's probably where it is. But we'll lay out that case next week. I think that that's the best, uh, like, most likely place that is being referred to here. So it's the idea is that the Valley of Jehoshaphat is the valley where the Messiah ends up deciding against the nations as they surround Jerusalem. Now, that battle certainly begins elsewhere in Jerusalem. But it does, or excuse me, in Israel, but it will culminate in the battle against Jerusalem. So, for example, the Jezreel Valley, there's certainly, that's important because the nations will be gathered there at Armageddon, but the final battle will actually occur around Jerusalem. So, yes, the Jezreel Valley is like the assembly point, but Israel, excuse me, Jerusalem in Israel is where the final battle will occur. Yeah. Uh, Eric, where does this happen in a relationship to Daniel's 70th week as far as within that 70th week. Yeah, so those cosmic disturbances, what's very interesting is there's there's five of them, as I mentioned. And the, the final cosmic disturbance, what's, what's very interesting, in fact, turn your Bibles to Matthew 24, 29, if everyone would just do that. I want everyone to see this verse because it's synonymous with Joel 3, 14. And it's a very important it really helps us understand the 70th week of Daniel, I think. Matthew 24, 29, if everyone would turn there. Now remember, up until this point, Jesus given all of the signs within the 70th week of Daniel. Now he's talking about the very end. And notice he says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, you have to stop there, and you have to define what are those days. Those days, that's not the church age he's talking about. He's just talking about all the signs within the 70th week. He's referring to the 70th week of Daniel. That's those days. So he says, after the tribulation of those days, so this is the very end of it, the last, at the very end of the seven-year pro program, he says, the, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Notice verse 30, it says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, that all the tribes of the earth will mourn. So well, I'll just stop there. That's the final cosmic disturbance. It's at the end of the 70th week, and that's where the Messiah is coming back to set his foot on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14. He's bringing the, the nations to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, uh, Joel chapter 3. They're all synonymous. So if I were to make an equation, I would say Joel 3.14, the sun, moon, and stars being darkened, equals Matthew 24.29. Uh, it equals Zechariah 14, the final battle. I ho hope that makes sense. Where does the 
So that the very end of the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, at the very end. Uh, narrow day of the Lord, yep. Go ahead, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat it. Okay, the question is about Revelation 6 at the sixth seal and the cosmic disturbance there. Yeah, very good question. There's a lot of people who believe that that's exactly what Joel is referring to in Joel 3. The problem with that is there's other cosmic disturbances after that in the 70th week. In fact, you'll have a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars being darkened again. So we know the cosmic disturbance in Revelation 6 is not the final one. Okay, so again, there's a cosmic disturbance where you have the sun, moon, and stars affected at the sixth seal. Then you have it again at the fourth trumpet, fifth trumpet, fourth bowl. And then after the tribulation of those days, as Jesus describes in Matthew 24, 29. So one of the issues with like we have with pre-wrath, the pre-wrath says, well, the sun, moon, and stars being darkened, that just happens in Revelation chapter six. And that's really the day of the Lord. Well, the problem with that is, there's a lot of other cosmic disturbances that occur in the book of Revelation. What's interesting is in Joel, as he describes the sun, moon, and stars being darkened, it's at this very last battle where God brings all the nations against Jerusalem. Well, does that occur at the beginning of the 70th week, the middle of the 70th week, or at the end of the 70th week? Well, I think it's obvious it's at the end. Because after all, what's going to be left of the 70th week of Daniel after the Messiah comes and returns, wipes out the enemies that have been brought against Jerusalem with the Antichrist. I mean, that's Revelation chapter 19. That's where he destroys the enemies surrounding Jerusalem and he kills the false prophet and the false beast. He slays them. Okay, or, and actually, and when you get into Revelation 20, he sends them into the lake of fire. So my point is when you read Re uh, Joel chapter three, the sun, moon, and stars being darkened in conjunction with the Valley of Jehoshaphat, that has to be at the end of the 70th week. Revelation 6 is still more towards the beginning of the 70th week. Okay, so I hope that helps. Um, there's a chronology, and they all don't happen at once. The, the 70th week of Daniel may be characterized by cosmic disturbances. Revelation 6 just describes one of them. Okay, let me say it again. My, uh, the question was, about the work of the spirit. When it talks about not having a spirit or, or being having a heart of flesh or a heart of stone, is uh, not having a spirit the same as having a heart of stone? Is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear anything come before, so I, I heard you just fine now. I'm sorry about that, I didn't hear anything. No, that was my fault, I was off. No, that's all right. Um, yeah, having a heart of stone would be synonymous with having um, an unregenerate state where the spirit has not acted upon you. But having a heart of flesh in the analogy of Ezekiel 36 means you have a heart that's now responsive to God, yeah. meaning that the Holy Spirit enabled you to have that. Remember 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates our heart, enables us to believe. The moment we believe, we have the forgiveness of sins, we have right standing with God, and then we begin our life of walking in the ways of the Lord. Yes, we stumble, yes, we fall, but ultimately we're in the direction of perfection, which one day will be consummated when we're given our glorified bodies. That's that's the idea. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe we can clarify right now that various analogies have to be taken in their own context. Because if we Amen. look at the word flesh uh, in, in Galatians or in Romans, it often means the whole person alienated from God. Yep. But in that particular analogy, analogy, the heart of flesh would be one tenderized by God, so to speak, yep. rather than being a heart of stone. So in its own context, it's talking about something different than what the term That's flesh right. means when it's talking about sin nature. That's right. And Bob makes a great point. And that's what I was trying to point out earlier is that every writer has to be given the ability to have their own analogy. So Ezekiel's contrast is between stone and flesh. Um, Paul's difference is between flesh and the spirit. So Ezekiel is talking about the difference between a responsive heart and an unresponsive heart. That's his point. So if we try to take Paul's categories and enforce them upon Ezekiel, all of a sudden we're, we're messing up the analogy. Now they're talking about the same issue of regeneration by the spirit, 
they're just using different analogies. Right. So that's exactly right. That's the way I always have to understand the analogy as the biblical writer has used it. Yeah. Peter. What was the Corinthian verse you referred to? Yes. Oh yeah, uh, 1 Corinthians twelve three. Okay, First Corinthians twelve three. Yeah, Amen. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So, yeah, Amen. Okay, I think we're out of time. Could you close okay. us in prayer? Yeah, let me close in prayer. Um, and I got one announcement. I have to just reiterate one more time. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. I thank you for the scriptures. I thank you, Lord, for your promises that you will one day get rid of the rebellion that we see and that you'll establish your kingdom forevermore. We thank you for this. We pray for Bob and the message upstairs in our worship. We pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear, that we'd be not just hearers of the word, but doers, that we'd live lives that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.